puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat Carl Wood and Company Side chatters as time goes on. Sometimes it seems like we spend so much time in the alternative we nearly forget what's really holding up consensus reality. Because the idea that the physical is all that exists, that consciousness is nothing more than a trick of the brain, has been proven false without a doubt even in my limited experience. Not to mention the mountain of research done on remote viewing, near-death experience, precognition, dimethyltryptamine, self-healing, and many other phenomenon we can clearly see exist, yet somehow remain completely ignored and dismissed by the gatekeeping priesthood from on high of what we call scientism. And that goes for the realm of geopolitical conspiracy too, because we have plenty of information to show that our regulatory agencies are more for show than for safety, we know false flags have been used to start many major conflicts, and it's clear to see that powerful people, almost without exception, come from the same old network of interlocking secret clubs and think tanks such as Skull and Bones, Freemasonry, Bohemian Grove, the CFR, the Bilderberg Group, and all the like. But ask any person on the street and they'll tell you that it all amounts to nothing because it wasn't on the evening news. Well, these are things today's guest Alex Sakiris knows all too well and that he and I really are on parallel journeys. Alex is the host of the popular Skeptico podcast and the author of Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything, and he saw the cracks, crevices, and gaping holes ignored by academia, and instead of finding a spoonful of sugar to help that medicine of denial go down, he embarked on a podcasting journey to dig into the weirder data and talk to the bright minds and brilliant researchers that are just outside the box that could tell the stories carefully kept out of the mainstream. So here he is, people, a fellow SoCal kindred spirit, a data-driven digital detective, and a confrontational co-conspirator in the plot to overthrow the oligarchs of sanctioned ideas and break the consciousness quarantine. My friend and yours, Alex, welcome to the fucking higher side. Greg, amazing introduction as usual. Ah. Great to be here. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the show, so it's going to be fun. You are too kind, man. And yes, it's going to be a real blast. Thanks for doing it. Long overdue. You were kind enough to let my stupid stoner ramblings take up one of your episodes, and I'm really psyched I could get you over here on my weirdo show now. And I wanted to start this episode in that kind of classic Skeptico fashion and find a point of difference that we could have a little friendly sparring over. But I honestly struggled to find much. It seems like we're pretty well aligned on the big ticket items. The fact that psychedelics do have value, but also were used in mind control experiments and attempts at culture shaping, that the climate change movement is about control, vaccines have been weaponized and the data suppressed, the material atheist model is wrong and breaking down more all the time, 9-11 was clearly an inside job, UFOs are both nuts and bolts spacecraft and have a key consciousness component. Powerful people know things about what we call magic that are hidden from us. The data we have is rarely the full story when you factor in the conspiratorial cabals. 
We both love Southern California. I mean, shit, man. Is there a point of difference that you think we disagree on? We'll find one, believe me. It's, it's my specialty area. <laughs> yes, I love it. But no, I mean, I think you've hit on a bunch of points there that we are in agreement with. We're coming at it from a slightly different angle. You are way ahead of the curve in terms of understanding and trying to understand and integrate the conspiratorial aspect of it. I really started out as a guy who was asking some really basic science questions. Who are we? Why are we here? And in the process of asking those questions and trying to get answers from the people I thought were the smartest people, the people like you said, who were ordained and sanctioned to be the holders of that knowledge, I just ran smack dab freight train head on into conspiracy at every Mm -hmm. turn, into lies, half-truths, misinformation, misdirection, all the kind of stuff that is your bread and butter. And that's where I think we truly are kindred spirits because it's then getting past that. I mean, like I like to say, Skeptico for me has evolved into a three-part process. Follow the data wherever it leads. Look for the conspiracy because if you don't, it's going to bite you in the ass. You're going to be taking in stuff that you shouldn't be taking in. And then finally, find the deep spirituality. For me, that's answering those questions. Who am I really? Why am I here? At the end of the day, if I'm not getting some little piece of information that moves me closer to that deeper spirituality, well, then I haven't really done much. Mm, Well said. And I do love those three guidelines. I'm right there with you. And, you know, the biggest criticism I get is that I don't challenge my guests and some of their wild claims enough. And to me, that is one of the most fun parts of Skeptico, where you sort of do the opposite and question your guests' conventional claims. And it's so interesting to see those episodes where an academic finds themselves in the hot seat. I guess I would ask you, when you do these types of interviews, do you see a certain pattern emerge when you challenge the paradigm of these PhDs? Sometimes their behavior and reactions can be pretty telling, right? Yeah, it's really something that has truly evolved over the time. I mean, I didn't go into it thinking that that's what I'm going to do. I really went into it kind of naively thinking that these people could back up what they're saying. And I'm just kind of naturally someone who is, I'm from Chicago, you know, you're from Missouri, the show me state, you got a little bit of that in me. (laughs) I'm from Chicago, wise guy, like, hey, you know, what are you talking about? Back it up, you know, and when people didn't back it up, then it kind of emboldened me to move even further in that direction. And then what I found really just is the best is presenting people with their own writing and where it is a misrepresentation of the research as it's known to be. You know, presenting someone where they've misquoted somebody, I mean, how can you not do that? I mean, if you see where they've misquoted or misinterpreted something, then I think that has to be put on the table. And I do. So Mm -hmm. I could tell you a quick story about that if you want. Absolutely. I love these little stories. (laughs) Well, since a lot of what I do, like I said, is this consciousness related research stuff. I had this occasion, I was talking to this woman, head of this department at this university in San Francisco. Since her whole department was about consciousness, I was like keen to drill into this a little bit because I thought she'd missed the boat as we were chatting a little bit about prior to the interview that 
this consciousness thing really is fundamentally about some deep things about who we are. Are we these biological robots? Is consciousness an illusion? Or is there something more? And you ask any six-year-old and they'll say, no, there's something more. I'm real. I have feelings, you know. And it's totally absurd. And it's probably hard for some of your listeners to even believe that mainstream science still dabbles with and primarily supports the idea that consciousness, your day-by-day, minute-by-minute experience of who you are is nothing but an illusion. I mean, that is a crazy idea. Imagine you know you're you. You think you're you. You say hello, and there's something that observes that and hears that. You know that's not an illusion. You know if anything in the world is real, that's real. You are real. And yet science still dabbles with this idea that consciousness is an illusion. And in a while, we can talk about why they do, what's at stake for them if they let go of that idea that, as you said in the introduction, really doesn't make any sense. But back to this story. So I'm talking to this woman, you know, I'm hammering her pretty hard. And she's probably used to people kissing her ass pretty good. And I'm not being rude or anything, but I'm kind of being a little bit pushy. And finally she goes, why do you care? (laughs) And it kind of set me aback a little bit because it's like, why do I care? Why the fuck don't you care more? Yes. I mean, isn't this the fundamental question that we should be asking? Isn't this what it's really all about? You're playing all these games with rewording this stuff and misquoting research and not being attuned to the research you said, you know, near-death experience, neuroplasticity, reincarnation science, you know, as it done at the University of Virginia, genetics and epigenetics, you know, all this stuff which falsifies this materialistic, you are a robot in a meaningless universe paradigm, all that kind of collapses. And she's saying, why do you care? Well, I do care. And to turn it back to you, that's one of the things, no bullshit, that I really, really appreciate about the higher side chats. It's not conspiratainment. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out there that is conspiratainment. What I feel like when I'm listening to your show is you care about the underlying truth. You care about nudging closer to is this true? Is this not true? Mm-hmm. And that to me is the corollary with the consciousness stuff. Because if we're not biological robots in a meaningless universe, if we're more, and I think we are, then there's a lot of shit that we got to sort through. Mm -hmm. Well said, man. And I appreciate the kind words. And before this started, we were talking about that science of consciousness conference, something that happened in our neck of the woods. And I really wish I would have hit you up so we could go together because it is way more in your wheelhouse. But so many of the presentations by these Silicon Valley folks were about building a better AI and where they are with that process. And it was always about building a computer based off of the brain structure. And I'm sitting there, the least educated person in the room, and I'm thinking, I haven't heard one person bring up the fact that there's an element to our mind that is not the physical brain. I mean, it's not the physical brain that's floating out of our body For astral travel, it's not the physical brain that is floating around doing the remote viewing that apparently actually happens, as hard as that might be to believe, the data supports it. And so there's obviously something else there. And it's just crazy that an entire field of, you'd think, the brightest minds 
are in denial about it. I think they're too smart to be in denial in some cases. And I think that obviously, like you said, conspiracy touches on these areas. It sure does. And I always credit our buddy Gordon White with being one of the first people to really drive this home to me. But there's a great conspiracy story in this one as well, because if you look into the deep state shadow government's interest in consciousness, it really started, I hate to tie it to UFOs, but it really started right about the time that we suspect they started getting some information about UFOs and the occupants of those UFOs and some of the mind technology that they had in terms of telepathy and all the rest of that. But if you're not quite ready to go there, just set that aside and just look at the product of that research, right? So you have MKUltra, the famous mind control project of the 50s where they did all these horrible experiments on people. But it was all about understanding how to manipulate, control, weaponize, if you will, consciousness. And they weren't under the illusion that it was an illusion. <laughs> they were way past that. And if you want even more evidence of that, look at the Stargate program you referenced again, remote viewing. So take it out to Stanford Research Institute right up the road. Hal put off Russell Targ, Uri Geller, all names that people might recognize. They're doing remote viewing. They're doing psychic spying on the Russians, on the Chinese, on the American people, of course. They never include that in the mm -hmm. list, but of course they're doing that. This completely presupposes that consciousness is more, that consciousness is, as you say, outside of the brain as well as inside the brain, because we do know there is a relationship between the brain and consciousness. So anyways, how are these guys fronting like this? Mm -hmm. How are they fronting at this conference? How is Deepak Chopra, who on one hand is kind of speaking out of one side of his mouth and going, oh, yeah, you know, it's so much more, but then can rub shoulders with all the Silicon Valley guys and go, hey, man, if you can build AI and do it, then do it because we can build a machine and it's all brain-based stuff. I mean, there is a real conspiracy in terms of how consciousness has been assumed to be more by the deep state. So assumed to be spirits are somehow in the realm. Demons and all the rest of that stuff, hey, we got to consider that as part of the realm. Remote viewing, we got to consider that part of the realm. But the marching orders that have been given to academic science is pretend like none of that is real. And it's not like, as you and I could talk about, and I'm sure you'd agree, you know, a lot of people mishear that and they think, oh, you know, there's some big smoky room where everyone gets together and gives their marching orders. You know, you say this, you don't say this. I don't think that's how it happens. I think it's more the useful idiot model. You know, you just find someone who's parroting what you already want to say and you put a few breadcrumbs out in front of him, a few pieces of cheese and let him, you know, continue to go through the maze the way you want him to do. And you never touch the guy. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are saying the wrong thing, we know what happens to them. People are saying, oh, no, there are these other realms. There is this spirituality or this spirit realm that we have to consider. We prune those off the tree. You know, we cut off their research or worse. So how do you see that? useful idiot versus inside player thing working out. That is one thing I really wanted to, so many questions for you, <laughs> but that was one of them that I wanted to kind of ask. 
Sure. Well, you know, I'm not really married to very many models, but I would say like you, if I were to guess, I think it is kind of a lot more useful idiots out there than it is people who are actually meeting in those dark rooms. Because the way I see it is the oligarchs, all they had to do was control the education boards and control the universities. And once you get in there in those formative years of the American academia system, you create the content. And so you're going to breed all kinds of useful idiots because you're the ones giving out the certificates and chastising those who are going in other directions. You control the career pipelines of all the scientific realms. So right there is how you kind of control the narrative. And anyone who wants to be successful in those pools has to do things your way or they just won't be. And that creates the culture of self-policing. These people will call out their own colleagues if they're going in these weird areas. So I really think it's that easy, sadly. I totally agree with you. And I think that's exactly how it does play out. And, you know, I think there's another angle to it, too. And I had an excellent guest on who talked about this. The guy's a scientist for the longest time at Virginia Tech and taught science and the history of science. And his point that he added to it was that you have economic or market forces added to that, that in the 50s, there was this glut of PhDs because we were all pro-science after World War II and we saw all these opportunities to make money off of technology. So it was like, hey, go for it. But what happened is then the market shrunk and then there were fewer and fewer dollars being chased by more and more PhDs who we'd built the system, like you said, to crank it out. And it kind of had that effect of making it even easier to control people because now you know there's fewer dollars and if you can hold on to those dollars you can really get the rats fighting and get them to say exactly what you want to say that guy's name by the way is uh, dr henry bauer great guy uh, great books and influential ideas Mm. now another question that i wanted to try to hit early on was the question of why. Like, why do you think consciousness and things like near-death experience and remote viewing research are such a threat to the establishment? Why does the state feel the need to dig their heels in on this idea that consciousness doesn't exist when the church had been able to rule over us pretty damn well when the idea of a soul was pretty standard? Well, you might have hit on part of the reason. Well, I think that's kind of a false dichotomy that's been set up, this idea of science versus religion, but to whatever extent it's been set up, it's pretty well established and they play off it beautifully, right? So you're either an atheistic scientist or you're a religious person. You know, whenever you start talking about spirituality, people wind up saying, what are you? You know, which is like, right, Mm -hmm. you, you have to be pigeonholed. You know, oh, I'm a Catholic, I'm Jewish. I'm What a ridiculous idea. They're all these traditions that are based on cultish practices and controlling people, you know, and I piss off a lot of people when I say that, but I don't know how you can really interpret that any differently. Sure, there might have been some spiritual truths behind that, but that's kind of where it evolved. But it's even worse when you look over on the atheistic science side. I mean, their proposition, again, that we're biological robots in a meaningless universe is completely absurd and falsified, like we say. But as to why, They've bet everything on this proposition because if consciousness is more, then they have to go back to the church. They have to go back to their arch enemy on the other side and say, oh, shit, you were right. 
there is more to consider. And since as scientists, our job, our whole idea is that we can measure the outside world. We can measure it, compare it, contrast it, and report back to you about how it works. And if you introduce now the idea that fundamentally consciousness is overriding or underlying, however you want to put it, but that consciousness is fundamental to all that, now all bets are off. You know, as I said in the book, I give the example of boiling water. Let's take the most simple science experiment you can think of. It's like, what temperature does water boil at? And some guy goes, okay, that's easy. It's, you know, 212 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever. And they go, well, hold on. <laughs> you have to control for all the variables. What if you're up on the top of really high mountain? Okay, well, yeah, we have to control for altitude. That varies it. So we have to get all our controls in place. Okay, consciousness is not an illusion. There's a spiritual realm. Is that influencing the boiling water? How many angels were on the head of the thermometer when you placed it in the water? <laughs> These are, on one hand, absurd questions, but science can look around the corner and see that if it lets the game go, that's where it goes, right? right. It goes to where those questions do have to be put on the table. And science at that point has obsoleted itself in saying, we've done the best we can with this kind of little game that we've played, but since consciousness extends beyond what we can measure currently, extends beyond what we can observe, then our game is up. We have to put an asterisk by everything we do and saying, we did the best we could, but we weren't able to factor in consciousness because, well, nobody understands mm -hmm. how many angels fit on the head of a thermometer, you know? Right. And I do think you're correct. And it is a false dichotomy that's been set up to kind of control both sides. Of course, something I'm always reminded of is the Big Bang Theory was cooked up by a Vatican astronomer. You know, the book of Genesis for scientists came from the same source that is the complete opposite side of the coin. I just find that fascinating, that one little point. And I guess I would say we really need to know exactly what those 50s projects discovered about consciousness so that we could really understand why they hit us so hard in the later years with material atheism, because I think that's kind of the key to understanding it. We have speculations that they're breaking the minds of children and opening up portals to communications with entities. And you really got to wonder, like, what the hell did they discover that I would say that the material atheism rollout was a real reaction to because I went to a private Catholic school and in my environment, I was rebellious. And the best way to be a rebel was to be a material atheist, to bring Christopher Hitchinson's book to class. I knew I was pushing right up against that line of getting in serious trouble. And, you know, you're not going to actually send a kid to the principal's office for bringing a book to class that says God is not real, but you might want to. And so... To me, at that time in my life, that was really interesting, but at least I can look back and acknowledge that Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, a lot of these guys came out at the same time with New York Times bestsellers about atheism, and now it does look a little bit like a rollout to me. It's kind of curious in retrospect. Do you have those same thoughts? Well, I view it as multifaceted. The discussion we were having about how the educational process works, and I think you nailed it, if you control the institutions and the educational boards and the educational committees, and more importantly, if you control the money, the grants, that whole system, 
you can shape it in a direction where it then becomes a self-perpetuating machine that goes in this certain direction. And I think a lot of the materialistic, you are a biological robot in a meaningless universe stuff is nothing more than that. It's setting the wheels in motion and then they just run their own course. But this is the conspiratorial work that you do and why I think it's so important to raise that and to ask that question. To what extent was there this manufactured resistance on the part of the quote-unquote new atheist? Because there's two ways of looking at it. There's the angle that you took, but also remember that at that time there was a rise of the religious right in the United States, particularly from a political standpoint. George Bush figured out that even though he was a fake Christian, he could really win over a lot of Christians with this shtick that he did. So some of it was no doubt a political reactionary movement to that. But was there another element, as you're suggesting? Hey, man, of course that's on the table. <laughs> and to further the point of why this stuff would be a threat, well, just imagine if the floodgates were truly open. What if a hundred million Joe Schmoes were trying to remote view the Pentagon backroom meetings or project their consciousness into the Vatican vault? You know, that could be something that the elite would want to worry about. Or, you know, self-healing, if that was really explored, it would completely disrupt Big Pharma's money train. It could open up doors to magic. Who knows how powerful an awakened citizenry really could be? It's also the same reason that the ancients are made to look so stupid. You talk about a lot of these realms of science. Well, you know, it also ties into archaeology and anthropology and just the exploration of our ancestors, Egyptology. I mean, there's a clamp down in those areas too, because I think that you can almost draw a continuity between the shutdown of all that stuff by the Roman Empire and then what we have today, which is a culture of academics that says there's nothing to see there. They were all stupid. They're lucky that we brought them civilization and this is how we do things now. And it really does seem to be kind of a big umbrella that's covering the same type of secrets, generation after generation. And let me come at it from another angle as well that doesn't take away from all those or the potential of all those. How about the basic fact that when we make people feel alone, when we make them feel afraid, when we make them feel disempowered, like they don't have any, any power in their life, any ability to do anything, Aren't those the kind of people that are a lot easier to control, to manipulate, to herd from here to there mm -hmm. than a bunch of wild ass free thinkers who think that limits of their consciousness have no limits and that they can explore and be whoever they are and that they're not attached to what they can buy and what they can consume? I mean, which group do you want if you want to herd the cats? You know, I, I want the submissive alone afraid ones. <laughs> no doubt. And I mean, if consciousness affects matter, that is just a huge problem for the elite. I guess you could also say we see a similar thing with UFOs. It might not be that flying saucers themselves are the problem. It's maybe how easy they are to make or how disruptive they would be to the oil and energy industries. And apparently they open the doors to possibly some type of off the table physics that could really change humanity. I've also heard quotes from Tesla that suggest that with very little effort or resources, a person could use 
his technologies or his understanding of science to cause a lot of destruction, things that would make the atom bomb look small by comparison. And obviously, that's a concern to the elite and everybody. But I've heard some kind of elite apologists say, well, they have to suppress all this stuff because of its destructive power. Maybe, but it's also disruptive to their piggy bank. So let's not discount that element. We've been down that path way too many times to fall for that. We need to protect you. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take away all your rights, all the information that we promised to give you. We'll just take it all away from you. But there's another aspect of that that I think is very interesting to me and is certainly current in the news because you see drip by drip, obvious disclosure charade that is the Tom DeLonge New York Times thing. And I say it's a charade, not because it isn't real, but because of the way they framed it, right? The New York Times releases the reality of UFOs, and no one says, well, obviously this opens the floodgates for the understanding that this has been going on for 60 years. It's not like this is the only program. So the government has known, the government has lied to us. There's all these questions. But I digress slightly. I mean, one part is, why aren't those questions being asked? But more importantly to me is what is being substituted and introduced as the questions we should ask? What are the questions that Tom DeLong is directing us towards? And those are, hey, how can we use this to get free energy? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm of the deep spirituality. I'm, why are we, who are we? Why are we here? And I'm saying, you just dropped the consciousness bomb in terms of we are more. There are other beings that are more. There's this apparent realm that is outside of our existence where UFO ETs, near-death experience, people who have DMT experiences like Rick Strassman's patients at New Mexico who drop the DMT and then go to this other realm and there are the greys and they say, glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. So there's this whole other realm that we've now explored that completely redefines who we are. And what is Tom DeLonge saying? Hey, buddy, how about some free energy off of that? I was like, fuck your free energy. I want to know how this redefines who I am. (laughs) Right, right. That is obviously a huge question as well. And I really do like looking at Blink-182 through the lens of like a Dave McGowan or even a Joe Atwell and looking at his father, you know, Tom DeLong Sr., he was an oil company executive. His mother was a mortgage broker. So oil and banking right off the bat. Mark Hoppus, the guy who's in the band with him, his father worked for the U.S. Department of Defense designing missiles and bombs at uh, the Navy testing center out here. And so both of these guys are super connected. And this is a bit of a tangent, but Travis Barker seems to be the only one in that band with actual humble beginnings. And funny enough, there's a curious element to his story. He was always afraid to fly. In his teenage years, he was quote unquote, sure he was going to die in some kind of plane crash. Also, when Blink-182 was putting together artwork for that Take Off Your Pants and Jacket album in 2001, they created an icon for each band member, a jacket, a pair of pants, and an airplane. And Travis is quoted saying, please don't give me the plane. I have a really fucked up fear of flying. But in the end, they gave it to him anyway. And sure enough, he almost did die in a terrible plane crash. And there's that eerie intuition at play, number one, but also the idea that these things don't seem to happen to people in the club as much as they happen to people right around the club. And that's, of course, a tangent, but it just 
raises a whole lot of red flags about why this would be the band, why Tom DeLonge would be the guy that the deep state thinks the population is going to trust. I mean, I just think they were way off in that. And that's why he's kind of drifted to the background because they just thought that he had our trust. And one of the things that didn't go well was his Joe Rogan interview, but it just doesn't seem like the operation they were running took the way they wanted it to take. I think you're spot on. And I don't think I saw that right away. I reacted more to this free energy thing. But I'll tell you one thing I think that you just touched on, and this is like pure conspiracy stuff, but it also relates to the kind of skeptical mission and where you see why I've come to the conclusion that if you're not in the conspiracy game, you're not in the truth game in general. I mean, if you're just trying to find, figure out science, if you're not in the conspiracy game, you're not going to figure it out. I think the idea that the culture shapers, if you will, the people who are running these little games are much more in the reactive mode than they are in the proactive mode. I mean, they're just throwing shit up against the wall and see if it sticks. So that's where I wouldn't quite go as far with the Tom DeLonge thing. I'm not totally shut down to that. But I think it's more like, hey, this guy pops up, raises his hand and says, hey, I'm really interested in this and I want to do it. And some guy sits back and goes, hmm, how could we use that MF? Man, he's perfect. He's ringing all our bells that we want. Bring him in, buddy. <laughs> Let's give him the gospel and see what happens. And I think you're totally right. I think they ran that thing and they went out and all indications are they thought it was going to fly. They thought the New York Times thing and that everyone would be and it didn't. And they don't know. Well, none of us know why. Is everyone distracted? Is everyone already past that? Did everyone see through it as the charade that it is or the half truth that it is? We don't know. And they don't know either. That would be my contention. They're just throwing shit against the wall and seeing how it sticks. And when it doesn't stick, then there's a guy in the back of the room that says, you know what? We can use that too. You know, <laughs> and the next round we see will be based on, you know, that didn't work. And we learned something from that. So let's do this. Right. They can always back out of a plan. That's kind of something that people don't seem to realize. You can fill the 60s youth with psychedelics. And if you don't like the way they react to it, if they become too anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian, anti-war, you just usher in the war on drugs and lock them all up. Exactly, Greg. <laughs> exactly. And like Joe Atwell is awesome. I love talking to him. I've learned so much from him. But I think that's where you're kind of teasing me about the conspiracy pushback and what we might disagree on. I mean, I think there's so many areas to be a little bit more critical of our own community, you know. So Joe Atwell has done, as you just interviewed him, and I'm sure you guys talked about this, but this culture shaping thing that the CIA or the shadow government's been involved with, no doubt. But then to think that they kind of have it all planned out and it worked out the way it did, I think is the wrong road to go down. And I think you have to challenge that a little bit and consider the alternative, like what you just said, to me, makes a million times more sense in that, oh, shit, you know, that LSD thing, that's doing exactly what we didn't want it to do. You know, it's lighting up everybody and making them open to a greater reality. Ah, oh, we can fix that. We'll come in with the war on drugs, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it just makes so much sense. And when you consider the mind state of some of these deep players, they're just not 
thinking about that awakening that would occur. They're only thinking about weaponization, about truth serums, about that kind of stuff and how they can use it. So I think when they pushed it out there, and maybe this is real speculative, but maybe they learned about a connection between opening portals and entities and these entheogens, and they thought, let's see what happens when we give it to thousands of people. You know, let's see what happens when we give it to tens of thousands of people, if anything reacts to it. And, you know, obviously that's way out there, but I definitely think you can always put the genie back in the bottle when you pretty much have control of culture. I kind of think that's what Occupy was. They let that thing go in New York for a long time. It was a big community. They had a lending library. They're making meals. People are donating things. And then when you're done seeing how that experiment plays out, you send in the cops and it's gone in two days. Yeah. (laughs) It's that simple, but... Another thing I wanted to kind of ask you about is because we don't really get into the scientific data or the research on consciousness and psi effects very often. Because I think some of the listeners here maybe take those things for a given, but this is an area where you're very knowledgeable and we all have to deal with conventional thinkers in life. So it's good to have some ammunition for the alternative. Let me ask it this way. If you met a material atheist in a bar, what is the research that you're citing to best make the case that there's more to the model than just the physical? What would you confront them with? Well, there's a couple of ways you could go. <laughs> One, you could take your drink and walk the other way because <laughs> you're never going to change that mind. You know, belief systems, especially these kind, are really hard to penetrate. But anyone who's listening to this show already knows that has had enough Thanksgiving dinner conversations to know that people are married to their beliefs in this strange way that doesn't allow for a lot of change. But as far as research, the really, I think, clincher is the near-death experience science research. But you don't really want to start with that because they've already kind of poisoned that well a little bit, they being the other side holding on to the materialist science, and they'll throw at you all these reasons. We don't really know that they're dead, and that that's why we call it near death. And if they're dead, they didn't come back. Or they'll say, when the brain is in that state, it still can record some kind of consciousness, as we've shown at the University of Michigan and the rats who, after they died, still had a burst of brain. Now, let me, since I brought it up, tell you the counter to all those arguments. Of course, let me back up and say the near-death experience everybody knows is this widely reported phenomenon that after people die, they have an experience, a conscious memory of both their dying process, but then what happened after they died. And not only is that a contemporary idea, but you can find that in Plato back in the ancient Greeks. You can find it all through history and through just about every culture that you can look at, which is also a sign that scientists look at for a real phenomenon that is spread across cultures and across time. So if you look at that, And then you say, okay, are these near-death experiences really happening? We have a couple of reasons to think that they really do happen. One is that people have a continuous conscious experience from the time they have. What typically happens is somebody has a heart attack or somebody has a car accident and their heart stops. And immediately they pop outside their body and they're looking down on their body. So at this point, we don't know the physical condition of their brain. But what we do know through 50 years of work with 
EEG studies on animals and humans is that within usually 10 to 15 seconds, but at the most one minute, brain activity that we would associate with a conscious experience stops. And I was careful the way that I said that because, again, you got the University of Michigan and the little burst and rats and all this other bullshit that they throw in to just muddy the water. All the neurological data, all the neurological research we have associated with EEGs and other ways of measuring conscious experience in the traditional sense suggests that brain activity stops within usually 15 seconds after the heart stops. So if people can reliably report conscious experiences long after their heart has stopped, well, then you got a real problem for science, a real problem for materialism. The study I always like to point out to people because it kind of handles all these stupid arguments that people make is some research that was done by Dr. Penny Sartori in the UK and also done by Dr. Jan Holden at University of North Texas. And what they did was really simple. They took a group of cardiac patients, people who are admitted to the hospital because their heart is not so good. And they go to them beforehand and they say, hey, you might have a heart attack. <laughs> if you do have a heart attack, we'd like your permission that we're going to do this survey with you. So they get people to agree to that. And then invariably, people have heart attacks. When the people have heart attacks and they're resuscitated, they go to them with the survey, and the survey is really simple. It's divided up into two groups, a control group, and those are people who had the heart attack but didn't have a near-death experience. They don't claim to have any near-death experience, any memory of what happened after they died. The other group is the group that had a near-death experience, and then they ask them a series of very simple questions about their resuscitation. They say, hey, do you recall your resuscitation? Now, you have to know that in most modern hospitals, contrary to what you see on TV, resuscitation and the paddles and all the rest of that stuff doesn't happen for on the average one to two minutes after their heart stops. So again, we're outside of that window when there should be any brain activity when the resuscitation starts. So they go and they start asking these people, what was the resuscitation process like? And they have specific questions. And they ask the control group that didn't have a near-death experience. And they say, what are you talking about? I was dead. I don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, just do your best. What do you think? And they wind up answering with this stuff that sounds like a TV movie. You know, oh, well, then they came over at the paddles and, you know, this and that happened. And then they ask the other group. And the other group says, oh, no, I'll tell you exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, there weren't any paddles. They started doing compressions on my chest, but the nurse wasn't big enough. So she called over this other doctor and then he took over and she went around and put something on my head and they did this. But I remember that the nurse had this strange clip hanging off the side of her thing. They're giving all these details, right? That mm -hmm. the control group doesn't have. So one small study, one small example that blows away. And again, this is published peer-reviewed journal. It's academic by scientists, PhDs who know what they're doing. And when you have survival of consciousness after death, it completely closes the case. I mean, we can talk about self-directed neuroplasticity. We can talk about epigenetics. We can talk about a million other things. But that near-death experience science, like I just described, it's case closed. Mm -hmm. There's really no reason to kind of go on after that. 
Right. Yeah, I'm so glad you detailed that. And it makes sense because if you're going along in your vehicle and your car battery dies or the tank runs out of gas, you open your door and you get out of the driver's seat. Yeah. So, you know, if consciousness is kind of the true us in this vehicle of a meat body, it just seems like that's the no brainer. That's just how it happens. Of course, a little more automatic in the case of consciousness, but I can see the similarities. And I really love that you're able to get some people on that not only can confirm this kind of research, but also ones who still deny it. And I have to be honest, initially, I was hesitant to listen to Skeptico because of the name. I was like, oh, this is that Michael Shermer Skeptic Society shit. I've heard enough of this shit. But then, of course, it's completely different than that. And I really think that name works to your advantage because some researchers who just think of it as another media appearance, they might not dig any deeper and they have completely conventional research and they go on a show called Skeptico to make their points and they're confronted with the lion's den. And I just think that's so great. Maybe if I called my show the consensus side chats, I could have some of those conversations too, but they just won't come and talk to me. And uh, Can I just tell you something there? Because it's kind of a funny story. Yeah. The name Skeptico came about because, you know, I started this thing really early on and I was kind of looking at these skeptics and I wanted to understand if they really had a position because I thought there was this other side to this. But I was much more open to there being a real genuine argument there. But anyways, the synchronicity story is I was kind of hung up on the skeptical thing and I'm a genuine skeptic. I really don't know what I believe. So. I have this Greek-American background, and I found this skeptikos. I found that there were this group of thinkers in ancient Greece, and they questioned everything. So I said, great. I don't even look any further. I just plug it in the DNS search. Okay, it's available. Grab it. You know, skeptico with a K, K-O. Not until five years later do I say, you know, I ought to at least understand what these guys were all about. This is five years later. You know, I'm not super on the ball on this thing. <laughs> I read this one sentence that stuck with me forever. It's these philosophers in ancient Greece who followed the idea of inquiry to perpetuate doubt. Mm. And I thought, wow, is that beautiful? Inquiry to perpetuate doubt. And to me, that has meaning on so many different levels. But isn't that where we want to be, perpetuating doubt? Not knowing, not coming down for sure, not saying everything's decided, because the deeper we get into this, I'm sure you'd agree, it only generates more questions. We have a sense of knowing about the direction we're headed, and it's kind of good, but the spiritual process is a process of doubt, baby. It's <laughs> perpetual doubt. Yeah, man. And I do like that story. And you're right. Skeptic has kind of been a term that has changed its meaning or means different things to different people. But that interpretation of being skeptical of the official narrative is the important aspect. And I think that that's kind of the definition that's in the background for a lot of people these days. And one more point about the near-death experience I was going to make is that it's great that some doctors and scientists are open to start talking about what's happening on the operating table to these people. But what they don't want to talk about very much is that almost without exception, these people, even though they see their own resuscitation, they're also greeted by spirits and given messages about life that sound a lot like the UFO contactees messages that they get, wouldn't you say? Yes and no. I mean, more yes than no. 
Have you ever ran across Ray Hernandez and the Free Group, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Experience? I don't think so, actually. Interesting guy. I'll have to hook you up with him because they're the first people to really do solid research. And they have some really heavy hitter research. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, I think he was at Harvard, but I mean, he's like 30 years PhD researcher, but they put together a very good survey and they kind of asked the extended consciousness questions. And the data set they got back is very, very close to what you're saying, is that contrary to the way the abduction, quote unquote, experience has been spun, it really looks more like a spiritual experience like we'd associate with a near-death experience or other extraordinary spiritual experiences like people have with psychedelics, not all the time, but you get the idea. A lot of commonality in these extended consciousness spiritual experiences, just like you said. Yeah, man. I mean, there's just so much connective tissue between all the things that are in the quarantine box. And I think that's just so fascinating that they're connected in some way, thematically to say the least. And Back to that point about Skeptico and its initial meaning or its original definition of rejecting the official narrative. It's like, where are the scientists that are going against the official narrative? They're like non-existent. There should be scientists out there doing GMO glyphosate studies. They should be going through the, what, 70 vaccines we give to children and double checking the CDC's work. They should be testing chemtrails or even cell phones. And it's like, the entire scientific community doesn't challenge a damn thing or ever test anything. It's just 100% blind consensus out there. Well, that's why I referenced Dr. Henry Bauer in his books, in his research, because not disagreeing with anything you're saying, it's all that and worse. Adding the understanding of the economics that are involved and the dynamics of promotion and all that. You know, when I started this, Many years ago, <laughs> I was at the University of Arizona and I was getting a PhD because I had worked for a couple of years out in the workforce. And the only thing I was able to figure out is I sure as shit didn't want to do that. You know, and all the people who were above me, I was like, I'm going to turn into that asshole. No way. You know, I'll go back. I'll get a PhD. I can hang around campuses, all the beautiful girls, just young girls, you know. I mean, that's yeah. what you're thinking when you're in your 20s, you know. Of course. I'll just do that. It'd be easy life, all the rest of it. So I went back and found it to be just as bullshitty as the corporate money chasing world. And that didn't last long. But it propelled me to start a company. And I started a company based on some AI technology I had been working on. And it was a long road of, of misery and pain and many, many mistakes. But eventually it came out for me. But I guess what I learned in that whole thing about academics is that it's a different game than what we think. They're off in their own little world like we always hear about in their ivory tower. And there's the infighting and there's the change of focus and just following the cheese. I don't think it's quite as Back to this thing of, you know, are they being directed or are they just kind of useful idiots who are being kind of led by the nose? And I think many, many more useful idiots. I mean, mm -hmm. pick any one of those topics and we'd have that kind of discussion. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, man. You know, like vaccines, you know, I mean, vaccines. I mean, are are they sitting around doing that or are they just going, oh, here's the next research we're supposed to do. Just do it. Don't question 
you know, the underlying assumptions we're making. Just do what they told us to do, you know, test it this way. Right. Never mind that it's not being administered that way or never mind that we're giving 11-year-old girls this vaccine that only protects them for five years of sex-related cervical cancer. And that accounts for a small, small percentage of people who will be sexually active during that. Day. You know, never mind that. Just do what they told us to do and that's it. Don't question it. Yeah, man. And wow, this has been great. You know, you said so many kind things about me and THC and I really do love Skeptico. Not only do you squeeze a lot out of guests like Stanton Friedman and Michael Tassari on a couple of recent shows you did, but also those ones where you are more combative, like the Dr. Churchland interview and the one you did with uh, the evolutionary guy, Professor Michael Flannery. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Those are, those are just great. So you really have almost like two shows, two different ways of doing the interviews you do. And I just think that they really are fascinating. And again, the biggest criticism I get is not challenging guests enough. And I just love the way you do it with a smile still and just based on the data. You don't get into emotional arguments. You're like, hey, look at this. You got to look at it. And I just think it's such a, a great way to be. And as we're winding down, you know, I love a guest who does know me and THC quite well because you are so opinionated. I feel like I can take it as well. And these things do make us better. What would you say are the things you like least about THC? What do I do here that just makes you roll your eyes and cringe and want to turn it off? Oh, wow. That's tough. I mean, <laughs> what I do, I don't know if this is a direct response to that, but what I do, and I think most people do with my show too, is I pick the guests that I want to listen to. And I think that's okay, you know? So I guess. The more work you put into selecting guests that really make a contribution to this body of knowledge where we can really learn something, then that's when I really get excited about THC. If I feel like it's a show that I've heard before or that isn't adding anything new to the body of knowledge I'm going to have, then you know, I just got to move on because there's too many great shows out there and too many great episodes. I haven't listened to all the episodes of THC, so I'm just going on to the next episode. So does that hit, you know, is the, the guest selection, I think, is just so, so key. Yeah, I definitely think that's fair. And there might be a filler guest once in a while, of course. And you had written to me that you agree with about 40% of THC and really disagree with about 10%. Can you elaborate on what material or topics fit into, if not both categories, at least that 10%? <laughs> Now you're really going to put me put me on the on the spot. I'm trying to give you a taste of your own medicine, man. <laughs> well, t take for example Joseph Farrell. Mm. I love him. I think he's great. I think his Nazi Roswell thing is absurd, and I don't know why he persists with this, other than he's had this idea out there for a while, and you know he just can't back off of it. Take Chris Knowles. I really like Chris Knowles. I mean, I really like him. He's been on the show and he's going to be on the show a bunch of other times. And some of the information he has is super important in terms of this synchronistic symbology kind of thing that people are into. But he's a 40 percenter. You know, don't go too far with that stuff. It just kind of falls apart when you really 
push it too far and I'm always trying to like rein it in. Man, I really enjoyed the show that I did on astrology because you know the drill. A listener sent me a request and said, hey, there's this guest you should really interview. Her name is Renee Alsop and she is the Julie Byshall of astrology. Now, Dr. Julie Byshall is the best medium researcher in the world. PhD in pharmacology, completely tuned into how to run a controlled study, has applied that on mediumship, talking to spirits, and has concrete proof that these things really happen, right? That's her thing. So my ears are perked up when this guy says, hey, this woman has done this quality of research on astrology. So I look at it, sure enough, she's published in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, which I know is a really hard journal to get into. If you have a peer-reviewed journal in there, I've interviewed many guests who have. They said it's the hardest journal they've ever had to get into among all the ones they did. So I'm all on board with doing this. And I'll make this short because we're kind of wrapping it up. But we set up the interview and we set it up as a two-parter. First part, you're going to do an astrology reading for me. And second part, where we talk about your research. We do the first part, the astrology reading. It's a bomb. She's totally off. I'm like, hey, that's no problem. You know, I've done a ton of these medium readings on the air and stuff like that. It's hit or miss. I get it. And she's like, no, they're not. I am 95% accurate. And I'm like, no one's fucking 95% accurate. (laughs) That's not real. That's not how this stuff works. So it turned into this really interesting interplay. People can listen to the full interview. But at the end, she came on and she has fantastic research that would lead one to conclude that there is a reality to astrology. But on the other hand, astrological readings and predictions and like you got that guy on there doing that. I don't think that really, that's a 10 percenter there Mm. (laughs) that we're going to know what's going to happen next quarter because somebody read the chart of the United States or the world or anything like that. That's in the 10% category for me. Okay, okay. I think there's some to it. I really do think we're kind of in some cosmic grandfather clock and that divination in multiple forms seems to work if there's a long enough history of it, maybe because we're in some type of simulation and it's a rule of the game. I don't know. I, and I definitely agree it's not 100% for sure. And I got to let you go, but maybe one more thing related to guest selection, or really just to give a nod to the good guys. You've mentioned several, but who are the leaders we should look for and plug for bucking the system, yet also staying academic and scholarly? Who are your top people out there right now? Mm. Boy, that's a tough one. I really like Joe Atwell, who you just recently interviewed. You know why I like him? Because everybody hates him. (laughs) Not everybody hates him. But when you go online, this is like the quintessential skeptico moment for me. There's two of them. One, you interview Joe Atwell and he says, hey, Christianity is a contrivacy of the Romans. And he goes too far with that theory. But along the way, he takes you with some really solid shit that will totally undermine anyone who has this belief in the Bible or Christianity the way it's been told. It doesn't undermine the underlying spiritual truth that might be there, but it sure undermines the story. But then you look at what people are saying about Joe Atwell, like I did, and I interviewed these people, some of the top biblical scholars, you know, who are Carrier and Price and Bart Ehrman, 
no one knows these names, a biblical scholar at Duke. And, you know, these are obscure fields, but I'm digging into this stuff. I'm talking to these people. I'm having them on the show. And one by one, they're falling. They put up a good front and they're saying they got their shit together and they're falling like freaking dominoes. And they're having to admit that, oh, well, yeah, I'm just saying he's going too far. But yeah, I guess the Bible is pro-Roman. I guess Mark does have all the footprints of Josephus on it. You know, the fundamental issues that people should really care about, these guys are having to back off of their publicly stated things. That's the kind of stuff that gets me fired up because for people who are Christian, it's a game changer. And here's a guy who's withstood all this public criticism who on the internet is just – all the comments on my thing. Oh, this guy's been debunked so many times. It's like, no, you haven't looked far enough. He hasn't been debunked. So he'd be one. Another one of my favorites is I mentioned Dr. Jeff Long and just a quick story about him. This is the other quintessential skeptical moment. I always remember talking to Jeff. It was this top-notch NDE, near-death experience researcher. And he talked about helping this other researcher who was a skeptic of near-death experience. But Jeff helped him all along the research, let him use some of his data. And then Jeff read the guy's paper when he was done. And not to get too techy, but the guy had concluded that NDEs were REM intrusion, you know, when you're sleeping, the REM cycle, all this kind of stuff. Mm. But anyways, Jeff's reading it and he goes, shit, he's right. Oh, my God, I've been wrong. I put all my effort into this and I'm wrong. He's right. And then he kind of gathers himself and he digs a little bit deeper and goes, hey, wait a minute. He didn't control for that. And Oh, no, he did this. and Oh, he made that assumption. Oh, no, he's not right. He's way off. He's really fiddled with the data. But that moment when a guy is willing to say, oh, shit, I'm wrong. That to me is what it's all about. If you're not open to play in that game, then you're playing some other game that I don't understand because I want to just try and nudge a little bit closer to the truth. And in the process, I have to risk being wrong all the time because I am going to be wrong. And I probably said about 10 things in this episode that, you know, you're going to talk to me a year from now and go, oh, yeah, I was just fucked up. I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> but I think that's the edge that we're on. Well, I think that is a great story for sure. And it does just kind of point out there's many, many layers to this stuff. And we really need to be careful about what we think we know or what data or studies or websites we just blindly trust because there's just so many different little nuances to how something can go one way or a conclusion can come out the other way. And you just got to be careful, even when it's not necessarily ill-intentioned, like it didn't seem in that in that case necessarily. It's just more about being stuck in a paradigm, but also with Joe Atwell, got to thank you for hooking us up. You know, that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't made the connection, I don't think. And I think it really turned into a good episode, but either way, man, this has been a hell of a ride. I really enjoyed it. I consider you an inspiration. I really love the show you do. Remind people where to find it and anything else they should know about keeping up with your work. Well, that's super nice of you to say, Greg. It's Easy to find. You just have to spell Skeptico with a K, S-K-E-P-T-I-K-O, and then the book, Why Science is Wrong, about almost everything. You know, that's it. We're just out there doing the <laughs> doing the thing, you know, I, yeah, yeah. like we do, you know, the podcasting thing. So uh, any ideas people have about who they'd like to hear and who's in that science consciousness realm, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Right on. Cheers to that. Well, 
Awesome. Again, big thanks to you for taking the time and the kind words you've said about me and THC. Keep doing what you do. Okay, Greg. Take care. And boom goes the dynamite, people. Big thanks to Alex. I'm really happy to know that guy. You might remember I mentioned in a show a few weeks back that I wanted to incorporate a little more Skeptico into the higher side. And by that, I really mean having on specifically some of these researchers who are looking into consciousness and psi research, people who compile stories of -of out-of-body experiences in hospitals, people who compile stories of kids who remember past lives. If we want to get out of the conspiracy trenches a little bit from time to time, more often than we have lately, I think that these are some of the other things we talk about. And I just don't go to those areas for guest material as often as I'm starting to think that I should. Just like sometimes we talk about secret sciences and Tesla tech and Thomas Townsend Brown's flying machines, but I don't go to those conferences or go over those speaker lineups for guests either. But that would probably be another unique and exciting area to get into more. And really, of all the pools, I tend to pull from podcasting the least, but of course, Alex is an exception, and he was well overdue. And if you haven't heard Skeptico, you can definitely rely on it to be high quality. He also has no ads and always gets right into the topic with a great all-encompassing overview introduction. And he's very unique in that this is a straight passion project in every sense of the word. Yeah, THC is a passion project for me, but it's also a job, and I have to manage it as both. But for Alex, it's just all for the love of the game. And that adds an element to what makes the show so good, and why he does push the more stubborn guests more than other hosts would. Because that exploration is the point. If you can't get out of the paradigm on Skeptico, what are you even doing there? He doesn't really care about being another softball interview in your lineup of media rounds. He doesn't have to do this. (laughs) So check it out. I mean, he's a good-natured guy. We talked about maybe working on some other projects together. That would be fun. And we're both in the same area. So I hope we can. I hope we do. Also, if you heard the Plus Show, it's something that I'm realizing happens with podcasters. But we end up talking about THC way too much, in my opinion. And I can't help it because it's the common ground that we have between host, guest, and audience. Obviously, I always want to focus on the guests, but it's hard sometimes to get too deep into specific episodes of their shows when you, the listening audience, don't really have that context. And sometimes it starts to sound like, oh, your interview with X was just so great. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, that was a good one. Oh, yes. And Y was killer, too. Oh, well, you're just too kind. And that sort of back and forth that can happen. It's like two people talking about a movie that you just haven't seen. So I try to avoid that, but then we end up talking about THC and then I just feel weird. And as awkward as I sound taking compliments and over-explaining my choices, at least I know we're not talking over your head. Also, when it came to the Plus Show, Alex had given me some topic suggestions and there were a lot of fun things in there. And a lot of them did come out in the Plus Show. We talked about the Flat Earth and THC, this Jason Hogg kid, Alex's experiences in the business circles of Silicon Valley, Wolfgang Halbig on THC, the various ways to think about hierarchical consciousness, 
the proverbial tap on the shoulder that we have to consider with all alternative media, and also something we focused on for a while, which was the crossover between conspiracy and comedy. And neither of us are going to be experts there, but I think it's definitely fodder for a good conversation. And I definitely had a lot of little things to say about various people and situations. But it was almost like we had Alex in the hosting chair for a bit there. But I guess that happens when you're talking to an interviewer. They can flip you. They can flip you for real if you're not on your guard. (laughs) But this was a great time. And I just wanted to introduce you to Alex's work if you weren't familiar. Because I hope he's someone who comes back here and checks in from time to time and tells us about the latest going on in his world. But do go through the Skeptico archives. I mean, he's got Jacques Vallée in there. He's got Gordon White and Chris Knowles in there. Michael Tassarion recently, and I really liked that one. And I thought he squeezed a lot of juice out of Stanton Friedman, too. Oh, (laughs) and he also had Jim Mars on and asked him point blank, are you involved in Scientology? I can't believe I forgot to bring that up when he was here. But (laughs) yeah, that was awesome. And so clearly we walk on parallel tracks. And that was just a beautiful thing. You should check that one out for sure. Just like also I talked about in the Plus show when Ryan and Sam on Tinfoil Hat, they asked Eddie Bravo point blank about Joe Rogan getting the tap on the shoulder. And that's the elephant in the room because the show is too huge not to have been brought into the fold, even just subtly. But that was something to watch too. And I think those guys will have to be the next podcasters we do an episode with because they've just been great podcasting friends. And they also have really covered some impressive ground and made real cool contributions at this point. And I hope that's what more podcasters do strive for, is like real impact. I think we've had some great moments too, contributing to the collective record of interesting things. Alex, again, was very kind in pointing out some of those things that he thinks qualify. But I really want to keep that in my mind more often. As Alex said, guest selection is key. And the questions of, does this interview move the needle? Is this something new? Does this occupy an untapped space in the archive? Or is it more the same? These are things we got to consider. I got to consider. Of course, nothing is going to be new all the time. But the more we can push that way, the better, no doubt. I think today's show did fill a void in the archive with a real synthesis of that data on the fringe, and there's no better guy than Alex for the job. Really hope you liked it. Also, if you're not a Plus member, then you didn't hear the latest THC before this at all. Lori Handrahan, the pedophile epidemic, supply pipelines, and child abusers in power. It is a very dark one to say the least, but she does go pretty deep, and it's a Plus-only show. Rarely do we have that, but once in a while we do. Sign up already. TheHigherSideChatsPlus.com slash subscribe. Or you can go to Patreon. Also, just a reminder, we do have that Discord server going, run by Archangel X. And it looks like there is going to be a live chat about THC every other night. Can you believe that? There was a poll, and people apparently want to talk THC every other night. So I think each will have a focused topic, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm pretty excited about it. The first one is Saturday, March 17th at 7 p.m. Pacific, I think. I'm going to miss that one, but I'll surely jump in soon. Look in the show notes for the Discord server link. 
And that's about it, guys. The next THC is actually going to be a Whopper as well, if you ask me. I'm really happy with the way that turned out. Can't wait to unleash that beast on you. But that's it for today. Your move, consciousness, quarantiners, scientific school, syllabus writers, and useful idiots of the big machine. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. The nine to five is trying to steal you, now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings from some spy agency? Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful when it's all exposed. The vast conspiracy, there's such a difference between us and the dead It's done.